please join us for the 10th episode of Bewitched. Just one happy family. Bewitched, bothered and bewildered, am I? Welcome to Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered our podcast about magical sitcoms from the 1960s. I'm Frank. And I'm Molly. And you're joining us for the 10th episode of Bewitched. Just one happy family. But before we get started, we're going to give you a brief synopsis. Samantha's powerful warlock father, Maurice, has learned of her elopement, and he is coming to Morning Glory Circle for a visit. Endora warns Sam that he will be furious when he finds out that her husband, Darren, is immortal. Samantha at first gently advises Darren to stay away, and then magically tries to keep him and her father apart. But before long, the truth is revealed, and Darren and Maurice meet to catastrophic results. Excellent. All right. Shall we go ahead and get started? Yes, let's go ahead and get started. The episode opens with the TV repairman crouched in the Stevens living room. He was hired only to attach the antenna but he's disassembled the entire set. I thought all it needed was the antenna. Oh, no. No, lady, that was just part of it. Your oscillator variation control is out. Your audio analyzer is burned, and that uh, TV filter, well, that's all shredded. It's going to be a job, big job. He basically assaults Samantha with a laundry list of technical jargon. Yes. Can I use your phone? Yes, of course. It's in the kitchen. Thanks. So she lets him go use the phone. Yeah, I put the antenna up, and I stripped down the set. That'd be worth about 40 bucks to put it back together again. (laughs) (laughs) He's talking to somebody about how he's going to make an extra 40 bucks to put the TV back together. He interrupts his own con by calling up some... You presume it's his boss to let him know that he's taking Sam for a ride. It's a very short phone call, and when he comes back in the room... The set has been completely reassembled. And Samantha is watching a show, casually in a chair. How did you, uh... Nail file. (laughs) She says that she fixed it all with her nail file. Yes. Kind of a great rejoinder for his deliberate attempt to confuse her with all of his manly Radio Shack technical talk to say that she fixed it all with her womanly implement of a nail file. Yes, I love that. It's awesome. (laughs) We've never talked about the placement of that TV. Not that it's hugely important, but it is weird. At the foot of the stairs. At the foot of the stairs. So does she like, <laughs> pull a chair over to watch it? Anyway, it's not incorporated into the living room. I guess it was early in the world of TV. And nowadays, living rooms kind of automatically have a place for a television. Yes. Actually, interestingly, mine doesn't. 
have a place for your television set? There's no place for a television set in my living room, and we don't have one in the actual living room. That's good manners and good breeding. Right, exactly. I was always told that it is symptomatic of bachelor men to have a prominent, highly visible television set as soon as you enter somebody's living room. It's funny because my son-in-law was quite distressed all through the remodeling. Whenever I showed him the plans, there wasn't a place for the television. And he wanted to put the television where my artwork is. And it's like, no, those paintings are a big part of the design. I'm not going to, you know, and then there was the idea of somehow inserting a television into the fireplace, which I think is the most garish change we could have made to that living room. Yeah. And for full disclosure, your son-in-law is a home theater audio-visual enthusiast. Very much insane. Like he's got a whole soundproof room with a giant TV. He could talk to you for hours about TVs. Actually, I was thinking about asking him if you wouldn't mind checking out our TV settings and audio settings. He seems like so adept at this. Oh yeah, he would do that. We have a nice TV in the basement with a viewing area like when people were here watching a football game they all go into the basement which is great for me because i don't like football and then you don't have to listen to their to their football blather Yeah. yeah so when your guests come into your home and they're seated in your living room they are forced to parlay to banter to small talk right they just are facing each other they have to exist by their wits without any sort of visual distraction yeah that's true After the opening credits, the first real scene in the episode is in the Stevens' kitchen, with Sam serving Darren his breakfast. They're putting a new train in service. Leaves the city at 10 p.m. How about that? Don't tell me. That's a gentle way of saying you're going to have to start working nights again. Nothing like it. My evenings with you are worth more than success or gold. I should think Larry would want you to save your strength. He'd go out of business if you got sick. Samantha says that Larry should stop working him to the bone and that they'd go out of business if Darren got sick because he draws all the cartoons. (laughs) That is grueling work, drawing (laughs) cartoons. You're so mean. Darren really doesn't deserve it in this episode, (laughs) and you're already so mean No, I know. I'm already being mean to him. (laughs) Samantha opens the refrigerator, and guess who's there? Indora, in miniaturized form, is sitting on a bar of butter. Yeah, is that a brand of butter that's real? I don't believe so. The What does the brand name say? Albane Butter. Al, there's no such thing as Albane Butter. So Albane <laughs> Butter, and then behind her are some olives, and then on the other side is a bottle of olive oil. All corporate logos and trademarked names are scrubbed from media, Unless they are a sponsor, like Coca-Cola. Right. But the thing that I noted about this is, did people used to keep their olive oil in the refrigerator? Why would you do that? It actually looks cloudy like it would get if you left it in the refrigerator. People used to keep bananas in refrigerators. Oh, interesting. They did all kinds of fucked up stuff. (laughs) Well, they've got plenty of olives for the martinis that they're always drinking. What is your preferred accessory for a martini? Mine is a twist of lime. I love olives. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I really do. And the more gimmicky the olive, the better. Like Blue cheese stuffed. Oh, I love that. 
We were talking about... About train schedules, and it turns into Darren making a very sweet proclamation of love to Samantha. Darren's kind of a sweetheart in this episode. Yeah. What did you say, dear? I said it was sweet of you to say so. Say what? About my being more important to you than gold. I like the thought. Sincerely said and honestly felt. Then Endora is whispering to Samantha from the refrigerator. And then a moment later, she is popping out of a teacup. Also, again, in miniaturized form in the pantry. She's trying to warn Samantha that she needs to talk to her right away. And Samantha keeps saying that there's nothing you can say to me that you can't say in front of Darren. Samantha, I advise you to listen to me. Yes, sir. What did you say, honey? Darren becomes suspicious because it seems like she's talking into the cupboards. He keeps saying, what, what? (laughs) Who are you talking to? So when she comes out into the living room to say goodbye to him, she makes the announcement that her father is coming. Your father? Yes. He knows I'm married and he's coming to see me tonight. When did you find out about this? Just now. You were talking to the dishes. I was talking to Mother. She was trying to be unobtrusive. Oh. Oh, so your father's coming. I'd like to meet him. Father doesn't approve of mixed marriages. (laughs) Darren, already having gone through a pretty harrowing experience with Endora, thinks that this will be manageable. Right. And Samantha is quite clear that that's not true at all, and that her father has a a terrible temper. Well, so does Endora, really. I thought this was an interesting thing about how her father is mean to Darren in his quite violent ways. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like, that's just the way he is. (laughs) She still loves him. He's an intolerant snob. Yes, definitely an intolerant snob. Honey, it's time he faced the fact. You're married to me. What can he do about it? She shows him what her father can do by breaking the glass ornament in the front hall. That's what he can do about it. You're kidding. No, Darren, I'm not kidding. I know my father, and I better break the news to him alone. Okay. Okay, but I'm coming home right afterwards. Those fears are well-founded. But Darren is gung-ho. He's going he's gonna to meet him. He's going to face it. He's going to stand up to him. The next scene is in the office, and Larry is bringing in a handful of drawings to set on Darren's desk. It's funny that they get to use that prop of just bringing drawings around. They are busy men of business. Now, I want to ask you, Darren has a whole series of books on his shelf, and it looks like they all match. Do you think he has a set of encyclopedias up there? That's exactly what it is. He (laughs) has the Encyclopedia Britannica full 1964 (laughs) set. Hey, it was the Wikipedia before Wikipedia. Yeah. Try to get on it this afternoon, will you? We can talk about it on the train. I uh, forgot to tell you, Larry, I won't be going home tonight. Oh, really? Darren tells Larry that he won't be going home tonight. And Larry, oh God, this pisses me off so much. Larry raises an eyebrow and says, oh, really? And with just two words, 
and that raised eyebrow, Larry implies that Darren is stepping out on Sam. And with the smirk on his face, he makes it clear that he approves. Yes. Yes. It's the briefest moment. But again, Larry is just proving again what a slime bucket he is. Oh, really? Come on now, Larry. I'm just going to stay in town and have dinner. Trouble with Samantha? No, of course not. Then why can't you go home? The fact is, my father-in-law's coming over tonight, and Samantha hasn't told him about me yet. So what? He should be proud to have the finest account executive of McMahon and Tate for a son-in-law. The finest account executive. The finest account executive. I'm afraid that wouldn't impress him very much, Larry. Well, you're a fine human being, Darren. What more does he want? If I told you, you'd never believe me. <laughs> Samantha and Endora are at the house. Samantha's giving herself a pep talk about how she should interact with her father about Darren. And Endora is there being pretty supportive. I've got to be strong with Daddy. After all, I'm not a child anymore. You better be careful or you won't be a bride anymore. <laughs> it's not fair. No one tells him how to run his life. Well, first of all, your father doesn't run his life. He choreographs it. I don't care what he does. When he gets here, I'm going to stand right up to him. (gasps) Can you describe what Endora and Samantha are wearing, Molly? Yes. So Samantha has a pink evening dress on, sleeveless, low back, with a bow at the bust, kind of low cut, perfectly suited to this time period where there were starting to be hippies and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. this would have been a quite a conservative debutante's dress. Sure. It's very pretty. And Endora. And Endora is wearing a really interesting dress. I was looking at it and wondering how it would come across today. It is blue, kind of a midnight blue, and it is a lot of that same fabric that's in all the penoirs, that sort of nylon sheer fabric that I think was an imitation of silk. It has sort of a shawl collar, very big arms with lots of pleating down the arms, and the arms are sheer. So it's not like she's wearing a sleeveless dress. She's got these billowing sheer sleeves, and then it's tight at the waist, and it has a very full skirt. And she's got a a sparkling brooch on the shawl collar, center front, Samantha looks very youthful and elegant, and Endora looks very formal and elegant. Samantha looks youthful, elegant, and prim and proper. Mm-hmm. Endora looks a little bit more adventurous. It's definitely a, a real daring kind of out there dress for a woman of her age at that time. We'll have to post some pictures um, or some screen grabs on the website. Yeah, I love both of these dresses. The striking thing in the shot that I'm looking at now is the orange color of Endora's hair. <laughs> it looks like spig- it looks like spaghettios. It does look like spaghettios. It's just this bright <laughs> fluorescent kind of orange, and Samantha's hair is just sort of a really natural kind of blonde, not even bleached look. Remember that this has been colorized, but really, once we get into the color episodes, the spaghettio effect of Endora's hair remains the same. Father! Samantha! Maurice appears at the door with a chauffeur and a limousine parked in front of the house, and he is dressed formally in a tuxedo and white silk scarf. 
once he uh, says hello to Samantha, he waves his hand and dismisses them. I'm not sure why, if he can apparate anywhere, I'm not sure why he needed that. <laughs> I don't know why he needed the chauffeur in the car. But it, com- it completes the ensemble of his tuxedo very nicely. Yeah, I think Maurice is really wedded to... Trappings of luxury. The trappings of luxury, right. Yeah, he, he belongs to that fancy warlocks club that we'll get into later, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And he's always dressed in a tuxedo. I mean, almost always. He's always very formal, and his accent is quite formal. Close your eyes and reach in my pocket. You brought me something? Haven't I always? He gives both Samantha and Endora a piece of jewelry when he walks in. You know, you get the impression that they're very extravagant. Mm -hmm. He and Endora talk about that quaint little shop with the disagreeable clerk. In Zurich. In Zurich, yeah. And aren't they the diamond people? I thought they were the Nazi gold people. Oh, maybe so. Yeah. Beautiful alpine villages where jet setters buy trinkets. Right, right, exactly. It was before people traveled farther afield in Europe, that would be where the fancy people would go for a vacation. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, how very thoughtful of you. From that charming little shop in Zurich, remember? Oh, yes, yes, I remember. Is that disagreeable little clerk still there? Oh, yes, he's there and still disagreeable, (laughs) but uh, very, very little. (laughs) And he makes a, a gesture with his fingers to indicate that he's two inches tall. This is a really good exchange to focus on because... It's clear that Maurice and Endora both share a penchant for punishing mortals for the mildest of offenses. Yes. Yeah, they, they, they punish rudeness by shrinking somebody. Severely. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, if well, the guy that's... is really two inches tall, I mean, that you could make a whole movie about that guy <laughs> and what happened well, to him later. <laughs> the two of them are aristocrats, and they are needlessly cruel and dangerous snobs. The fact that they make people small as a punishment comes up often. Mm -hmm. So it just fits in with that. The little people versus the important people. Defines their personalities, absolutely. They talk about it like it's a funny and inside joke. (laughs) I haven't brought anything for the man of the house, but then what can you create for a man who has everything? Hmm. Uh, What's his name? Uh, Daryl? Shall we talk uh, just for a quick moment? about the actor who plays Maurice. Yes. He is a British actor named Morris Evans. Spelling is the same, but the pronunciation is different. It's a British pronunciation of Morris instead of Maurice. He appeared in a dozen episodes of Bewitched as Samantha's father. He was a formally trained Shakespearean actor and a contemporary and peer of Sir Laurence Olivier. They started their uh, stage careers simultaneously. He appeared in more American television productions of Shakespeare's work than any other actor. So his British accent is authentic. Authentic. Yeah, authentic. Unlike every other affected person's accent in the show who are mainly Midwesterners, (laughs) pretending to be from the East Coast. (laughs) In his case, it was not an affectation. Yeah. He has two major film credits. One of them is Rosemary's Baby, where he played the doomed friend of Mia Farrow, who tries to warn her about her satanic neighbors. Ah. Are you aware that the Bramford had rather an unpleasant reputation around the turn of the century? 
It's where the Trench sisters conducted their little dietary experiments. And Keith Kennedy held his parties. Adrian Mercado lived there, too. So did Pearl oh, Adrian. Who were the Trench sisters? The Trench sisters were two proper Victorian ladies. They cooked and ate several young children, including a niece. Oh, lovely. Adrian Mercato practiced witchcraft. He made quite a splash in the 90s by announcing that he'd conjured up the living devil. Apparently, people believed him, so they attacked and nearly killed him in the lobby of the Branford. You're joking. They called him Black Branford. But hot. Awful things happen in every apartment house. Uh, this house has a high incident on pleasant happenings. In 59, a dead infant was found wrapped in newspaper in the basement. The other is Dr. Zayas, who was, you'll remember, an intelligent orangutan from the original Planet of the Apes film franchise. Dr. Zayas, I know who I am, but who are you? How in hell did this upside-down civilization get started? You may well call it upside-down since you occupy its lowest level, and deservedly so. Who is the main antagonist of those uh, first couple of films. All my life I've awaited your coming and dreaded it. Like death itself. Why? I've terrified you from the first, Doctor. I still do. You're afraid of me and you hate me. Why? Because you're a man. And you're right. I have always known about man. From the evidence, I believe his wisdom must walk hand in hand with his idiocy. So he spent a lot of his career playing a caricature or spoof of what probably his real aspirations were to be a Shakespearean actor? (laughs) Well, I'd say that when it came to television and films, you know, if he wasn't doing Shakespeare, he was definitely slumming. Yes. Dinny Donald. Darren. Darren. Darren, that's a good name. It's got a good sound to it. Darren. Darren what? Stevens. I love his character. I think he's really consistent. He always brings a lot of magic to the table. Stevens. I don't think I've ever flown into them. Massachusetts. Very old stock. Good. Implying that the witch and warlock world is kind of a small group where you would normally have met all the other people or have had contact with their families. Very analogous to an upper crust New England family asking, who are their people and where do they summer? Are you happy? Yes, I am. That's all that's important. That's what I've always wanted for you. Do you really mean that, Father? Of course I do. Apparently, there are conditions. Then I have something to tell you. Marry the right man and you'll be happy. The right man? Haven't I always said that? Find the man of whom I approve and he'll make you happy. Do you remember my telling you that? Yes, now that you mention it. (laughs) That's sort of a old sexist fatherly talk. There are the right kind of people, Molly, and the wrong kind of people. Right. And the definitions of those two things have changed continuously over the decades. But at the time that it's being uttered in this episode of Bewitched, it is really just an issue of social class and possibly racial background. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously always a lot of racial overtones in the show because witches are seen to be a different race. And it's interesting that 
witches and mortals each see each other as the inferior race, even though the witches really have all the power. Darren and Larry are in a bar drinking. Darren, as he's getting into his cups, begins to admit at least some of the details of why he is hiding out in the bar. Doesn't make sense. Why should he be against your marriage? He just doesn't approve of mixed marriages. Oh, I didn't know you were mixed. And Larry says, I didn't know you were mixed. Oh, yeah, with a slightly disapproving look, like this is a revelation. God, I hate Larry. (laughs) It's extraordinary that Larry says and does so little, but it puts me off so easily. (laughs) He's meant to be a horrible character. Is he? Is he? uh, We should probably, you know, I, I was having dinner with my brother's, my older brother's boyfriend the other evening. And he was like, wow, you really hate Larry Tate. Tell me about the actor. Tell me about, like, the actor's life and everything. And I had to admit that despite the fact that I do a fair amount of research for every episode of Bewitched, I hate Larry so much I'd never bothered to look up anything about him. (laughs) Makes sense. But we should probably talk a little bit about him. You know, we just talk about each (laughs) despicable thing that he does. But at some (laughs) point, we we should have a little background on the the actor. We could do that right now. Oh, you've looked it up. I did look it up. There isn't much, so it'll be very brief. That dinner conversation got you thinking. <laughs> it, it really did. Well, it, it shamed me more than anything else. <laughs> the actor who played Larry was David White, who was 48 when he landed the role. Okay, let's just talk about that for a minute. <laughs> 48. 48. Everybody looked older then, don't you think? Oh, yeah. We've mentioned this before, but now, really, (laughs) yeah, with his plume of snowy white hair, he looks definitely 10 years older at least. And it's more like the wrinkling in the skin and the sun damage, and uh, they all all smoked. (laughs) So we won't spend a lot of time talking about the actor David White, but did you know that he appeared in 166 episodes of Bewitched? Actually, according to IMDb, it's 191. Wow. He is second only to Elizabeth Montgomery, who plays Samantha in the number of episodes that he was in. So he was in more episodes than Darren? He was in more episodes than uh, than Dick York. Right. Or Dick Sargent. Right. But the, the, if, if you combined mm-hmm. them, they would have been in more. <laughs> Then, then yes, then Dar- Darren, you're right, is a staple and is in over in the characters almost every episode. But as an actor, he was second only to Elizabeth Montgomery. Even Agnes Moorhead only showed up in 147. Uh, Even though she got credit at the beginning of every episode, she took her own little sabbaticals. It was the Sam and Larry Tate show? So what else was Larry in? About four years before he was in this, he was in an, an amazing Billy Wilder movie called The Apartment. With Jack Lemon and... Uh, Shirley MacLaine. Shirley MacLaine, thank you very much. He played one of uh, five smarmy executives who were using Jack Lemon's apartment as a love nest, as a honeypot, where they have their affairs with their mistresses. So he played a cat in that as well. Yeah, looking at the breadth of his career, you kind of get the impression that he was typecast as the white, smarmy executive whose natural habitat is an office environment, chasing tail. Yeah. Well, I feel like I saw him in an episode, at least one of the Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, he definitely was on the Twilight Zone. Okay. He did a lot of one-shots. Yeah. He was also in the Happy Hooker Goes to Washington. Ooh. <laughs> it's not a pornographic film. <laughs> is it? How old is it? It was the sequel to The Happy Hooker. Well, what was The Happy Hooker about? It was a film that starred Lynn Redgrave as this prostitute who had written her autobiography. It was a very popular 70s read. Bestseller on the New York Times list. Yeah, I feel like I read it or saw the movie or something. I'm sure I did. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to get off on this tangent. Yeah. Well, so now we're back to the mixed marriage of Darren Stevens. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Larry says it's a mixed marriage. Darren has to come up quickly with how they're mixed without revealing that Samantha is a witch. And so he says <laughs> yes. that he's English and she's Norwegian. And then Larry's flabbergasted, like, that's a mixed marriage? <laughs> you're both you're white both, like, <laughs> you're both lily white <laughs> is that a mixed marriage yeah. <laughs> oh i didn't know you were mixed <laughs> oh yes uh, i'm english and she's norwegian <laughs> that's a mixed marriage <laughs> to her father it is what is he a viking <laughs> it is funny though because in those days certain religious differences would have created a mixed marriage. So for example, in my family, we were raised Methodist. And if you go back to my grandmother's generation, it would have been very scandalous if she had married a Catholic. Very scandalous. And in fact, there was quite a bit of trouble between Methodists and Lutherans. Interesting. Mixed marriages referred to things that now we would just not believe could even possibly be mixed marriages. So my grandmother was not allowed to drink beer or coffee or play cards or dance <laughs> it's pronounced footloose yes so germans were off limits because they drank alcohol and so did catholics but they also worshipped idols oh really and that was really quite terrible yeah which idols were those well you know they had the little statues of mary in the window that's what i think oh. it was but i know that it was about worshiping idols that they would say was really was really scandalous so it's funny because the methodist church was extremely conservative like that and then there was some reformation or something i should know more about this but by the time we reached the 60s about when this show was on my grandmother who worked in a church had a minister she had to work with that looked like john denver and played the guitar and it was <laughs> crazy so she you know you have this uh, extremely staid secretary that's worked there for 30 years and you've got this guy coming in wanting to have kind of love-ins and be more accepting of other people <laughs> and it was quite interesting how i mean that would never be the issues in that kind of church now it's disappointing to hear that intolerance of idols you know graven images and filigree were my favorite part of growing up catholic yeah well also lawn ornaments i would not have been allowed to talk to you but i'm fascinated <laughs> with those idols now in fact i i often will look at like in a antique shop oh i saw a painting the other day with mary was crying in it and there's hearts and who was it black velvet no no it wasn't it was like something that somebody in the 1920s would have had hanging in their house uh -huh. to signify their catholicism and i loved it i just wanted to think of a place to put it in my house even though i've never been catholic i love the idea that 20s style religious art which was virtue signaling for its time has turned into kitsch it's total kitsch <laughs> kitsch the love of my life <laughs> well where is he when am i going to get a look at him 
Well, um, he's not here, is he, Mother? Uh, I hope not. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I mean, if he was here, he wouldn't be where he was supposed to be. <laughs> Isn't that right, Samantha? Yes, yes, Mother, that's right. And he's supposed to be in Washington. So things are starting to break down at the Stevens home between Endora, Samantha, and Maurice. What do you think of him, Endora? Well, I... Samantha looks at her with praying hands, just like, say something nice, Mother, say something nice. And she says, (laughs) well, I think he would surprise you. (laughs) And he says, good, thinking that that's a positive. I uh, think he'll surprise you. (laughs) Good. So even though Endora dislikes Darren, she really supports Samantha in the end. Indeed. When it comes down to the idea that something might happen to Darren at Maurice's hand, Endora is doing her best to be supportive, even though she still isn't admitting to actually liking Darren. She's doing it for Samantha. Back at the bar, Larry is giving Darren a pep talk about, why don't you stand up to that old man? What are you doing? Look, Darren, you love Samantha, don't you? Certainly. Well, then you have to fight for her. Stand up to the old man. What can he do to you? Point a finger at you and blow you up like you were made out of glass? (laughs) (laughs) And Samantha's lying, saying that Darren will be away for a few days when, of course, Darren rings in on the telephone. Darren should be home in a few days. He's been working so hard lately. Aren't you going to answer it? The telephone? (laughs) Oh, yes, yes, of course. Hello? Oh, hello, Darren. How are you? I'm in a bar getting drunk. (laughs) You're so far away, I can hardly hear you. He's so far away, I can hardly hear him. He won't be home for a week. Why not? Oh, that's a shame. You see, my father dropped in tonight, and I was hoping the two of you would get a chance to meet. If you think I'm going to spend a week in this bar, you're out of your mind. Oh, no, no, of course not. Which is kind of a hilarious excuse to say that he's out of town. Yes. Because we know that (laughs) should he wish to curtail his trip and pop in for five minutes just to meet the old man, he could easily do that if he were a warlock. Yeah, these warlocks can pop in and out anywhere they need to. So, yeah, being in D.C. is no problem. To be frank, Samantha could pop him in even if he wasn't a warlock. (laughs) So the whole ruse about him being out of town is ridiculous. But then Samantha, in an effort to prevent Darren from coming over and standing up to the old man, locks him in a phone booth. Darren, you can't. I don't care, Sam. I'm coming home. I beg of you, Darren. Please don't come home. Please listen to me. I'm through listening. Goodbye. Hello? Hello, Darren? Please understand I'm doing this for your own good. (laughs) Do you want to explain for our younger listeners what a phone booth was? Well, a lot of our younger listeners will have watched Doctor Who. Was that a police booth? It was a police Police box, box, I believe. Which is quite similar to a phone booth. Yeah, it was just an emergency line to the police. Yes. 
So it's a, a little box that you can barely fit in. There might be a seat in it. In the fancy ones have a seat in it. Darren's in a very fancy wooden phone booth in what appears to be kind of a swanky hotel bar or something like that. It's encased in glass for privacy. Yep. And there's a telephone in it that you have to put money in to call most often. A dime. A dime. Ten right. cents a call. Important plot point happens after Darren is locked in the phone booth, which is that Maurice is trying to conjure up his favorite bottle of champagne. Chanson de mer. Chanson de mer. That means 53. Song of the Sea. Oh, Song of the Sea. I don't, which I don't think is a legitimate brand of champagne, but I could be wrong. But 1953, and he's unable to conjure it, which also, again, not to be the spoil sport stickler of magic, but why wouldn't Darren's have just come into his hand? Well, I was thinking about that a little bit as I was watching the episode. When Maurice tries to conjure the vintage that he wants and he comes up empty-handed, maybe he's pulling from his own wine cellar? Even a powerful warlock like he is... A collector, he must keep his wine someplace, so maybe he's only drawing on those things that belong to him. Could be. He does say something along the lines of there only being six bottles left in the world. Chanson de Mer 59, 53 was much better. <laughs> no 53. Oh, well, probably only half a dozen bottles left. So Larry is talking to a lovely young lady at the bar. Larry could not be more clearly flirting with yes. some some rando at some the bar. Rando, yes. <laughs> a, a beautiful young rando who looks like she could be his daughter. But Yeah. Here, here's Larry who's complaining about his wife Louise being a shrew and someone he didn't want to spend time with. But the moment that he's out from under her shadow, he is just picking up some barfly. Back at home, Maurice is starting to pick up on some holes in Samantha's story. For example, he's looking in a photo album and sees Darren was in the service, which is highly suspect since warlocks don't serve in the military. But Samantha blows it off as that he's some enthusiast, and she says that she has pictures of him in several wars and then before that paintings. Warlocks and witches don't get involved in grubby mortal affairs, even if they are historical affairs. Yes. This comes again later when uh, it becomes clear that they don't get involved in things like politics. The witches and warlocks have their own politics. Ultimately, we then have Maurice finding more holes. He somehow went snooping into the medicine cabinet and could not understand why a warlock was taking medicine. He also pulls, one presumes he just conjures it, public record of Darren's birth certificate. Yes. Uh, Samantha tries to pass it all off as part of their ruse of living amongst mortals, but it doesn't work. No, ultimately she she admits it. She says, no, he's mortal. And she says, you aren't angry, are you? And then the explosions start. Maurice, looking like he's trying to control his rage, begins slowly walking around the Stevens living room, and anything that is made of porcelain or breakable begins to explode in his path. Yes. Books begin flying off the shelves. Oh, Maurice, you're being ridiculous! You, I turn my back on what happens. She marries a common, ordinary mortal. 
foreign is neither common nor ordinary. I am not talking to you. Times have changed, Maurice. This happens in the best of families. It does not happen in my family. Well, it has. It's over and done with. I'm married. And I am going to annul the marriage, Samantha, forever. Washington, eh? Father. Mother. Darren is coming into the house with his keys, and Andorra does something to get rid of him. And they bicker for a while about where he is, and Maurice is staring at Andorra. They're having a stare down. And ultimately, Maurice says, you're getting stronger, Andorra, and she strikes back. You're getting older, dear. Yeah, they seem to be having some sort of quiet, magical battle that's invisible to the naked eye. Yes, and quite hilarious. And it's funny that the man gets older and the woman gets stronger. I like that. Indeed, indeed. Then Endora tells Samantha to go get the newspaper, and Maurice grabs it from her, not knowing it's Darren, but using it as an object to, to gesture with. He starts slamming it on his knee and hitting it with his hand. <laughs> that is frightening to Samantha. And then he runs into the house and he throws it into the fire. <laughs> Again, just as a gesture. But Samantha runs and rescues it from the fire, puts it out, and then reapparates Darren. Darren is covered in soot and his hair is askew and his clothes are smoking. So I just want to point out that this is another problem with the magic. There's a great point made always that one witch can't undo another witch's magic. But Samantha reapparates Darren even though Endora is the one that made him a newspaper. Just FYI. Absolutely. Right away, Darren takes the attitude that he has been put upon. I've been burned. I was locked in a phone booth. <laughs> and I also happen to be married to your daughter. Well, smoke is still coming off his jacket. <laughs> whether you like it or not. And Maurice says, I have to admit he has courage. You picked a good one. It's a shame I have to do this. So Maurice just obliterates Darren in some way. He's, he goes up in a puff of smoke, yeah. orange with flames. And right away, Samantha and Andorra begin to implore him to bring Darren back. Maurice pats Samantha on the hand and says, you'll thank me for this one day, dear. I never want to see you again. You don't really mean that. You're excited. And then she tries to smite him. Saladam Belazar Oblivia! <laughs> How dare you speak like that to your father? <laughs> Sam is powerful in her way, but she is weak compared to her parents who don't even feel anything when she tries to cast a contrary spell to them. Maurice, I'm not overly fond of that boy either, but I'm not going to have a human being on my conscience. Now you bring him back. They're all for metting out unreasonable punishments for tiny infractions, but they're not into murdering people. That's crossing a line. Well, Maurice is into murdering people. <laughs> yes, he, doesn't he just have did. any compunction about it. It's Endora that's saying she's not into murdering Darren. Yeah. I'm not even sure I would say people. I guess she <laughs> says I don't want to have a human on my conscience, but I don't know. That's pretty weak sauce compared to the things that she does. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, Endora, what's done is done. You bring him back or I'll make your life miserable for you, and you know I can do it. I'll move in with you. <laughs> we have several references throughout the episode to make it clear that they were together, but they have not been together for a very long time. And Maurice is definitely having trysts with many, many other women. In future episodes, he seems to always show up with a young babe on his arm. And Endora seems to put up with it. Although it's interesting that they're still married. They're not divorced. Yeah. They're just not cohabitating. So they have like a version of an open marriage. Which they're both fine with. Yes. They, d- they don't seem to have any real desire to be together. Which has, which is, seems really... Um, Civilized? Well, <laughs> I guess you could say that. But it also <laughs> just seems funny for the time. You know, it, it seems like that would have been so scandalous at the time. But I guess they're also portrayed as people that are kind of so powerful. And the analogy would be money, like so rich that they can play by a different set of rules. The decadent libertine rich. Yes, yes. They are definitely the decadent libertine rich. I think that was something that really fascinated me about them. They seemed glamorous to me when I was a kid watching the show, yeah. So she threatens to move in with him, (laughs) and then he starts to look frightened. It's a frightened look. And then Samantha pleads, if you love me, please bring him back. And he says, does it really mean that much to you? Like, what? <laughs> what? Does it really mean that much to you? Okay. Now that I know it really means that much to you, I'll try. And then, of course, there's some drama because Maurice says he gave him a terrible jolt. So he wasn't <laughs> quite sure that he could bring him back. And we get Maurice being able to do some of his Shakespearean overacting to try to (laughs) pull Darren back from whatever other world he had sent him to. I love it that he's supposed to be the powerful guy and he makes all these weird kind of gestures and grimaces and (laughs) strains like, you know, he's holding his breath and straining to bring him back passing a kidney stone yeah (laughs) he undoes his tie and then you know little bits of darren are coming back his clothes yeah one one article of clothing at a time (laughs) a shoe another shoe uh his his sweater (laughs) his jacket (laughs) you begin to wonder if darren will come back in the nude oh thank god uh, he doesn't (laughs) luckily it just seems to be over clothes he he comes back in a t-shirt and looking... And pants. A t-shirt and pants, of course. Of yes, course thank pants. God, thank God. Let's not give yes. our, our listeners the wrong impression. <laughs> but no tie, no jacket, no shirt. He's got several layers missing. He looks a little dazed, but he seems all okay. You all right, Darren? Well, here we are. Just one big, happy family. (laughs) And then fade to the epilogue, which shows them trying to have a nice dinner together. Weirdly, Endora is sort of stuck at the kids' table. She's decided to have dinner by herself at the kitchen counter. She always hangs out at that counter. That's like her place. Maybe the lighting was better there or something for her. 
Samantha, Maurice, and Darren are all seated at the dining room table enjoying the end of their meal. And yeah, uh, Dora's doing her own thing. Yes. But she's participating in the conversation. Yes, she is. No, she's part of the group. She just happens to be off to the side. Maurice is saying that he would love to have grandchildren, and Dora says, don't rush on my account, (laughs) (laughs) which is a classic older lady statement. (laughs) And, of course, then they get into the naming issue. With Maurice insisting that he is not sentimental and he doesn't need to have the first son named after him, but then... Looks really disappointed. <laughs> yeah, totally insincere, even when he's saying it. Oh, well, I'm glad you feel that way, Daddy, because Darren promised his father that we'd name the first boy after him. Oh. Oh, well, I suppose some people need that. <laughs> well, I must fly. But before I go, I want to propose a toast. Chanson du Mer, 59. So then Maurice, to celebrate, conjures up a bottle of champagne. <laughs> This family? Nothing doing. And Darren pulls out of their tiny little bureau <laughs> a <laughs> bottle of the 53. And here they're finally connecting over a snobbery of wine. How about 53? <laughs> Chanson de Mer 53. So the episode ends on a positive note where, you know, we can cross boundaries as long as we share some level of snootiness. Yes. <laughs> we can all live with that, can't we? <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah, no, that's true. As long as you understand my taste. As long as you can appreciate the finer things. Right. We have somewhere to go right. from. Although I take a dim view of most mortals, you've made a very favorable impression, Donald. Darwin. <laughs> Darwin. <laughs> After a century or two, I might get to like you as well as I like this champagne. Too bad you won't be around that long. (laughs) Happiness, darling. Is the question worth asking in this episode, Molly? Can we forgive Darren? Uh, Yes, the only bad thing that he did was to say, I'm through listening and hang up and come home, even though Samantha was begging him not to. It was boorishness brought on by too much drink. Yeah. And uh, too much... Ginning Up by Larry Tate. Yes, I think that's true. Um, so, you know, I would put this on a two on the one to ten scale of Darren being unforgivable. <laughs> Normally he's way up there at eight to ten. Now, what the Larry Tate scale, unforgivable? Uh, yes. <laughs> Is he a ten out of ten? It's always a ten out of ten. Between uh-huh. his sidelong implication of Darren having an affair and approving of it and his uh sidelong comment about daring being mixed and this being an unpleasant revelation larry (laughs) is despicable he is despicable oh i think i hear the music must be time for us to leave thank you for joining us please join us again next week for another episode of bewitched in the meantime, you can listen to other shows on the Piwacket Network. The Brothers Grimmer with Bert and Frank. Kindred Spirits with Stephen and Bert. Well, until next time. Until next time.
Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered is a production of the Piwacket Podcast Network. Our opening song is sung by Melissa Arning. A special thanks to Melissa for letting us use it. I guess you're going to have to cut all this out because nobody cares. But Oh, that's... Hey, I cut out most of it. <laughs> have you ever noticed that there's no place to draw those cartoons in his actual office or at his desk? Like, what does he you do You made that observation in our last episode. Oh, did I really? Oh, sorry. Yes. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> I do repeat it's an myself bucketti. a lot. Yeah, but... Uh, who wrote Sitting at the Dock of the Bay? Or who sang that? <laughs> that maddening song? That earworm? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. The singer of that. I think that... it was Leonard Skinner. No, no, no. Anyway. You're thinking of Sweet Home Alabama. You're thinking of something else. No. I, I just, I, these are my answers for every question about <laughs> music because I don't know anything. <laughs> and I, it usually has the intended effect of infuriating the person asking the question. <laughs> for our younger listeners, do you want to say who Bob Denver was? I said John Denver because that's the right name. <laughs> Sorry. Bob, Bob Denver was Gilligan on Gilligan's yes. Island. Can you yes. say who John Denver was? John Denver was? was like a folky kind of singer who sang about love, kind of saccharine, sweet songs. But he had long hair and a guitar and maybe would sort wear of a, one of those peasant kind of shirts. What do you call those? Those with the flowy sleeves and the tie at the neck. Sure. Uh, it was sort of a pirate yeah, shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Um, that was, and he had sort of a uh, who who was the figure skater? Um, Dorothy Hamill. No, he had sort of a Dorothy Hamill haircut. Yeah, cut. it looked like a like a longer bowl haircut. Yeah, and glasses, and he appeared with the Muppets on their Christmas special. And he liked to sing about like the mountains and the country, and then true love. Um, yeah, but it was so liberal to my grandmother. It was just it was a <laughs> s- signifier of free love, which was never talked about. But just she was quite disapproving of his shaggy haircut and whatnot. You know what the funny part of this is, Frank? What's that? We're eleven minutes into a twenty-five minute episode, <laughs> and we've been on for an hour and six minutes. Ah, uh, we'll 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 finish up fast. <laughs> okay. It's so funny. We we keep bringing up stuff that we can't name. It's like okay, some let me say trivia idea. We... <laughs> you should put together. You should put together a little uh, a little group of these things where we try to say something witty and we can't remember the reference. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows that the best character on that show is Rosie the robot. <laughs> <laughs> I guess.